Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. My name is Michael Anthony Ingram. Tonight, my very special guest is Francis DiClemente. His newest book is Outward Arrangements, Poems, 2021. Hello, Francis. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm quite well. And yourself? Doing fine. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, you're more than welcome. I'm glad you're here. You've written five other collections of poetry. Yes. All right. What inspired you to write this newest collection? Um, Well, this newest collection, um, a lot of it uh, were inspired by, like, um, moments that I I found or encountered while walking uh, to and from work. I usually walk to work about 30 minutes each way. And so um, it's just a sense of kind of like paying attention to the outside world beyond myself. Um, and so a lot of them came, they started as like uh, one section of the book is Instagram posts. So like I took pictures of stuff that would just be very interesting to me, like a baby stroller that was just sitting on the sidewalk, you know, and then I would write these little short poems and then, you know, I decided to include the, the, both the pictures and the, the text in, in the section of the book. So others were like more meditative, more philosophical, um, and that's in a different section. So it's kind of a little bit of everything, but um, with the idea of like looking outward and encountering the world. Okay, very nice. Well, let's begin this journey. Please share some of your work. Okay, I'll start with um, a first batch of some narrative poems. This is called Crossing Paths. An old man passes me on the street, shuffling gait, face twisted into a scowl, winter hat askew on his hat, and a cigarette dangling from his mouth. He goes one way and I another, two bodies sharing the same oxygen space with the smell of tobacco lingering in the air. He moves on toward his destination, unaware that I will use him as the subject of this story, a poem with no real ending, since I don't know where the old man went or if he made it safely there. That's the first one. Uh, Second one is called Morning Flight Path. Three gray-white pigeons flap their wings as they dart into a canopy of trees outside a nursing home. Their action reminds the residents inside that flight is attainable despite fragile bones and defective hearts. Yes, the senior citizens can fly, at least vicariously, as long as they peer out their grimy windows and suspend time while watching the pigeons scudding across the cerulean sky. Uh, So this uh, third one also involves birds, and it's a very short one. A line of black birds perched on a faded red billboard overlooking Interstate 81 in downtown Syracuse. Feathered sentries making aerial observations of life thrumming below. Um, And the next two are um, two narrative poems that are totally fictitious, and sometimes I just 
get ideas and run with them and and you know they take the form of of fiction but with a, a story behind it so this one's called descent and it takes place on a plane uh, when turbulence rocks the plane, rattling the drink cart and spilling ice cubes in the aisle, the passengers release a collective gasp. And as the aluminum tube plummets in the layers of cumulus clouds, a little blonde girl seated on her mother's lap squeals, Oh, oh, oh. The woman tries to calm her child, replying, Oh, is right. Ain't this fun? Warm sunlight streams through the circular windows, bathing my face as I snap my eyelids shut. Behind the twin folds of skin like canned parchment, my mind, rewind, my mind rewinds through select memories, the dots on my timeline shuttle, shuttling me to this point of peril, in this seat, on this plane. I steady my breathing and begin reciting a string of Hail Marys, my lips moving as I appeal to Our Lady of Perpetual Help to intervene on our behalf to help us get on the ground. In moments like these, I fear the worst and end to my life before I'm ready, before I've done what I'm supposed to do, whatever that is. But I also know we are never ready. We humans want more time alive, more days roaming this planet. And so I keep praying, asking God to park us safely in Syracuse. And if it's not to be, if the plane smashes on impact, then I ask him to transport me to my new home somewhere beyond these cumulus clouds. The engines groan, the landing gear drops, the aircraft descends, and the rolling tree-lined landscape of central New York sharpens into focus. And today God spares us relocation to our future residence as we touch down on the tarmac, eliciting applause from the little girl behind me who screams, thank you, thank you, Mr. Airplane. (laughs) And the last one in this section is called The Last Leaf. The last maple leaf did not want to leave the tree, even though his mother told him it was time to go, time to break free from the limb and fall to the ground. The little leaf said, why, why must I leave when I can still cling to this tree? Because, his mother replied, it's part of life, the cycle of nature. We drop to the ground during fall and return in the spring. So come on, let go. I will not, I will not, the little leaf said. But a stiff wind stirred and the leaf lost his grip and twirled to the earth, falling into his mother's grasp. See, that's not so bad, is it? His mother said. No, Mom, the little leaf said. But then he asked, Mom... Am I still a leaf if I'm no longer connected to the tree? And that's end of poem, end of the first batch. Oh, wow. Would you read that last poem again? Sure. Because it leads into my next question. Sure. That last poem. Okay, it's, it's called The Last Leaf. The last maple <clears throat> leaf did not want to leave the tree, even though his mother told him it was time to go, time to break free from the limb and fall to the ground. The little leaf said, why? Why must I leave when I can still cling to this tree? Because, his mother replied, it's part of life, the cycle of nature. We drop to the ground during fall and return in the spring. So come on, let go. I will not, I will not, the little leaf said. But a stiff wind stirred and the leaf lost his grip and twirled to the earth, falling into his mother's grasp. See, that's not so bad, is it? His mother said. No, Mom, the little leaf said. But then he asked, Mom, am I still a leaf if I'm no longer connected to the tree? 
of such a powerful work. <laughs> My question is, <laughs> for you growing up, what was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? And do you come from a literary background? Okay. Um, I'll answer the second one first. I don't come from really a literary background. You know, my mo- mother loved books. Um, um, my dad encouraged my writing, but I, not really a literary background, more from journalism background, like writing, you know, uh, for school newspaper and that sort of thing. And that, that, that was sort of like my original writing. Um, I, I guess in the sense that, of learning poetry had powers more in the sense of uh, music lyrics and, you know, listening to music lyrics of bands like U2 and, uh, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones and especially Bruce Springsteen, which I thought had like a lot of poetic power, especially when I was growing up. Um, so I, I think that was where I, I first saw the power of poetry. All right, very nice. Now, as you think about writing, and again, you're very prolific, do you think that someone can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? Um, I don't know. I, th- I think the thing with poetry, what's beautiful about it, especially now, is it's, it's open to anybody. And it's open mm-hmm. to so many different styles, you know, Um you know, there's like poets who are, you know, do the verbal poetry and poetry slam stuff. And, you know, that's one style. And, you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable like that because I'm too much of an introvert. But, you know, there's okay. people who, who right. write more narrative poems, people who wrote like serious poems. Um, so I think it's open to anybody. I think the emotion is, for me, is is central. I, I think, you know, that's, that's what draws me into poetry is, you know, connecting you and making you more aware of life and, and, you know, how we're all connected. So for me, yes, but I think it's open to anybody in in any type of style. Well, so for you, what about narrative poems intrigue you? Um, I, you know, I think, I think I'm a natural storyteller in a lot of different forms. Like I do, you know, nonfiction writing and I'm a filmmaker as well. So I think stories kind of always at, at the core. And most of the poems I write, you know, some are biogra- biographical, autobiographical, and then some, you know, I'll just take an idea of something and run with it in, in a fiction sense. Um, so I like the effect of, of narrative poems, especially because I think they can have a satisfying ending, you know, even if it's a short poem, it has a trajectory of like a beginning, middle and end. You know, sort of like that last leaf mm-hmm. story. You know, there is there is oh. a, a progression to a narrative. Yes, yes. You know, in one of the five poems that you shared, you talked about the cerulean sky, and yeah. I have a line in one of my poems where I talk about a cerulean sky. So it's funny to have that in common. Yeah, yeah. It <laughs> how, is. how small it is, but we both yeah. use cerulean sky. Well, yeah. what was it about the word cerulean as opposed to just saying a blue sky? I don't know. It's just you know. It's just I like it, and I think the yeah. thing that makes me, makes me nervous is I don't I I don't think I pronounce it right. I think you pronounce it right. That so I'm I was, <laughs> that would make me nervous. So I almost wanted to to change it to blue sky so it'd be easier to read. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's funny, you know. Please share another set of poems. Okay. So this first one is is definitely a narrative poem. It's called In Need 
in need of Houdini. Houdini. You are wrapped in chains and stuffed in a metal chest. The key has been discarded and the box dumped into the ocean. You can't stretch your legs or flap your arms and you're stuck in the box, unable to lift the latch and swim free. How long can you hold your breath? Um, And the second one is is similar. It's just more out in the open. And this one, I think I wrote sometime during the pandemic when I was thinking about, you know, life and death. It's called interment. I imagine the coffin lid closing, the pine box being lowered into the pit, shovels of dirt hitting the top, and no one hearing me scream, let me out, let me out, as I realize I've run out of time to make my life count. Uh, This third one is called Class Photo. Seeing every person as a 12-year-old child taking a school photo eliminates any animosity you may have for that person. When you imagine the awkward kid squinting at the camera lens, you discover yourself staring back at you. And let's see, this one is, hang on, this one is called uh, Inside the Package. When I see an overweight cafeteria worker's butt crack exposed while he empties the garbage can, I think the human body is an ugly receptacle, but the beauty it contains in the soul it holds makes the wrapping of the flesh so trivial. And that's the end of that batch. All right. <laughs> Speaking of the pandemic, how did the pandemic, or operating during the pandemic, how did that affect your writing? Um, you know, is you know, I did a, a our our the university that I worked for was working from home, um, so it was just you know I would go out for like walks you know by myself and um, so you know I think it was challenging for everybody, but I, I you know in in the course of my uh, walking I just tried to pay attention to things around me even more so, and just realizing mm-hmm. how fragile life is and you know. Sometimes just going to the park to hear the the sound of the trees whooshing, you know, would calm me down. Um, so I, I guess that that's it. But you know, trying to make it through like everybody else. Trying to make it through, and you're right. Yeah. It's been difficult. It's been yeah. difficult. Do you did you write more during the pandemic or less? I think I probably wrote more or, or, you know, it it seemed like I was writing like a lot of times, um, you know, the the ideas for poems just come to me and I, it's like, I can't resist it. And it's a lot of Mm -hmm. times it just starts with a single line and then I just take off to try and write it, you know, longhand out and just get that first draft down, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. Okay.
you're back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with the one and only Francis DiClemente. Francis, does writing energize or exhaust you? Yeah, a little bit of both, I think. Tell me more. <laughs> I, okay, well, I mean, I um, I work full time, so I get up early in the morning, like five five thirty, and write. You know, try to get in at least an hour before work, prep to get ready for work. So, um, you know, I I I'm get energized by that, and just I like that sense of accomplishment of even you know even if I do a half hour or an hour, and it's you know not always poetry. Sometimes I'm working on other stuff, but at least to like put a little bit of effort each day. Um, I guess I find it exhausting when you're struggling, you know, when you're struggling to find okay. the words or, or to find the structure of whether a poem or story or whatever you're working on. That's when it can be a little bit frustrating. If we call that writer's block in a sense, and that might be too big of a term, how do you how do you work your way through it? Um, I think you work your way through it by writing some really sucky writing to start okay. some really bad writing and having something to like revise. I think that, you know, at least in my experience, at least getting something down and then you can go from there. Now, how many poems are in your latest collection? Um, I'm not sure. It's pro- it's roughly about, uh, probably about 80, 85 to 90, somewhere in that, in that range. So you were writing or write all the time. Yeah. As you prepared. Yeah. yeah wow. Pretty much. Please share some more of your work. Okay. So uh, this one is called Squirrel No More. While walking along Walnut Avenue near my apartment complex, I see a dead squirrel splayed in a shaded area close to the curb. Front paws erect, a rivulet of brownish-red fluid leaking from its head. A fresh kill, a pelt of brown-black fur pressed against the asphalt like some animated character in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I I wonder whether I should call the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. Does the decaying organic matter pose a health risk? Should I pull the squirrel off to the side, toss it in the high grass adjacent to the curb, or let nature take its course with wind, rain, and runoff eroding the animal or crows eating the meat? And then more existential queries fill my head. Does the squirrel's family miss it? Are they conducting a neighborhood search? Will they mourn the loss of their relatives? Do squirrels have souls? Is there a heaven for rodents? I don't know why this little animal's death seizes my attention, but the small figure left out in the open triggers a sense of pity. And on this warm, sunny day with blue skies above me and trees swaying in the breeze, with insects buzzing and flowers bursting with color, with so much life abounding, the squirrel gets no more. No more summers, no more scurrying across power lines or cutting through green fields. No more autumn days spent climbing trees and storing nuts. The squirrel's fate reminds me once again that death shall come to all of us in one form or another. In the end, all mammals will be spattered in the road. And I accept this fact as I continue walking home. Uh, This one is called Cross on the Side of the Road. The guy who slid off the highway and died had no way of knowing he would die when he woke up in the morning. He could not foresee his, his demise. 
or be prepared for no longer being alive. He said no special words to his wife or hugged his kids extra hard. He simply got up, left the house, and went to work, expecting to come home in the evening. He could not predict he would face the moment we all dread. And what would it matter if he did? He had no time to think about the onset of death. He was too busy living to worry about the cessation of life. Uh, And this third one here is called Scenery on Interstate 81. Cows grazing in rolling green fields with heads bent to the ground. Dense white clouds hovering in the royal blue sky as sunlight filters through a stretch of trees whizzing by. Early August in central New York, summer fading and autumn advancing. Yet lake effect storms and wind chill conditions remain far off as the only thing frozen here is the memory of this perfect day captured and sealed in my mind, the stored image ready to be retrieved months from now when the doldrums of mid-February drag me down. Uh, And then two more in this flock. This one is called Opening the Memory Book. I love looking at the dates stamped in old library books. October 6, 1986. I backtrack in my mind to that time and recall my senior year of high school, autumn in Rome, New York, apple cider and piles of leaves, the roar of the crowd cheering on the Black Knights football team, and the crush I had on a girl that went unrequited. I see myself walking home alone on Pine Street with the stadium announcer's voice still audible in the distance. I wonder if that girl has left the game yet, if she's locked arm in arm or holding hands with some other boy. And would she even know me if she heard my name? And the last one, you can't feel it now because it's late July, but, you know, we have some pretty bad winters here in Syracuse, New York, and upstate New York. And so this one, in fact, Syracuse, I think, is from large cities is has the most annual snowfall of large cities in the U.S. I think the average snowfall is 100, 125 inches a year. So this is, which is rough. Yeah. So this is called how to survive winter in Syracuse. The only way to survive a Syracuse winter is to think of the snow as a friend and not a foe. When you scrape the ice crusted on your windshield and the snow clogs the streets, when your tires spin or your car veers off the road, regarding the snow as a friend and not a foe will help you to tolerate the season. Even when the snow lashes your face as it blows sideways or frozen clumps melt inside your boots, making your feet cold and damp, you must remember to view the snow as a friend and not a foe. And what a friend, a friend that keeps on giving and giving and giving six months out of the year, to which I say thank you, my dear friend, but I don't need your generosity. And that's the end of that section. (laughs) Now, do you hail from Syracuse? Were you born there? Uh, Just up the road, um, about an hour east of Syracuse in Rome, New York. Okay. So in terms of being from Rome, mm-hmm. all roads lead to Rome. Yeah. How has it how has it shaped your writing? Uh, what have I, you learned about yourself from being from that part of the country? Yeah, I think um, you know it is a small town, maybe thirty thousand people. Um, athletics were big. Uh, small town proud, pride was big, um, but it, you know economics 
difficulties, and so it kind of had a blue-collar feel to it, and I think it just kind of okay. um, taught me um, to have metal and, you know, to to face adversity, and, and um, you know, it's just a beautiful place, even though it's harsh, harsh environment with the snow, but you have four seasons, and so that kind of, you know, you see fall, and you see summer, and you see the, the world change and turn, and so it all kind of affected me. Well, here's the million-dollar question. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Uh, yeah, I, I kind of do. And only, only Well, first I must say, I think I was meant to be a poet, but, just, but even if you're a poet doesn't mean you're like, you know, a good poet. So let me just say, <laughs> okay. that's what I've learned from, like, you know, being a writer all the time and writing and writing. You can write as much as you want. It doesn't mean anybody really wants to read it. So you kind of have to do it for yourself first and just be obsessed with doing it in, in order to, like, keep working at it and to face the rejection that is normal for all writers. But I do think uh, I was born to be a poet in a sense because, um, you know, a lot of the ideas that I have, they just come out as verse. They come out in the form of, of, of poems. You know, I wish I was like James Patterson and could like plot, you know, page turning thrillers and make millions of dollars. But it's like the ideas mm-hmm. I get, they turn into poems. And, you know, I guess that's okay. it, the natural inclination. You know, there's an image of poets being overcome with inspiration and having to write everything out of nowhere and at once. Does this ever happen to you? Yeah, I Maybe think so. Maybe you've already like, asked that question. Yeah, I mean, I get ideas, and the one thing I always tell myself and tell anybody else is always have a little bit of notebook or pen with you. I mean, I know a lot of people compose on their phones, but I can't do it. I'm not a very good texter, so it's like I always have a little notebook, and sometimes it's like I'll be falling asleep, and I'll just have one line that'll pop in my head, and I have to wake myself up and just write it down um, before I lose it, you know. Mm. Please share another set of poems. Okay, so these will be relevant to you because they're all about poetry. So um, this one's no resistance. Um, Poetry invades the space in my head and I can't repel it. The lines of verse keep coming, flowing incessantly. Uh, Second batch is called My Excuse. Who cares what I write? Seriously, who needs my poetry? Just what is it I hope to accomplish with these jottings, these inane words that produce nothing but silence and rejection? In my defense, I confess I am am unable to resist the urge to record them. These things bubble inside me, banging away at my brain until I relent and allow them to spill out on the page. You see... For me, poetry is not a choice. It's an infection without an antidote, a mandate I am forced to obey. Uh, And this one is called simply, I hate poetry. I hate poetry, I really do. I hate how it gets into my brain and won't let go. I wish I could overcome my fear and try writing literary fiction or plotting a page-turning thriller, but poetry just laughs at me and transforms all of my creative ambitions into lines of free verse. Yes, I hate poetry, but it sure sticks to me. I guess I should accept the best I can ever be as a mediocre poet, one who hates writing poetry. And uh, that's the end of that block. Well, it's funny. You know, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it. 
while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on it? Speaking that we're talking about a section around poetry, what's your take on that? Um, I, yeah, I think that, you know, there's some that comes straight as inspiration. Um, but, you know, then, then I think you have to take the next stage and kind of see what you have and see how you can shape it and meld it and revise it. Um, it it's nice when the inspiration happens. You know, sometimes you just need like a little bit of a starting point, a little opening, whether that be an image or a line or something like that, and then you're kind of off to the race. All right. Please share another set of your work. Okay, uh, so these I'll do, um, uh, I'll do, uh, these are more like, um, which developed in this collection, uh, parenting poems, because I became a, a, you know, a parent to a toddler who's like five years old now. So these are like a, a set of those poems. This is called Entrance. As blood, urine, and feces stain the hospital sheets, a nurse tells a mother to be, Honey, don't be embarrassed. What happens in the delivery room stays in the delivery room. The mother-to-be moans and sheds tears as the epidural wears off and the labor reaches its climax with a medieval torture method known as tug-of-war. Sheets wrapped around ankles, legs hoisted in the air and pulled apart as the mother-to-be screams and squeezes her muscles and makes the final push until a tiny male human, slimy and alien-looking, pops out of the womb with a full head of downy brown hair and soft pliable ears like a teddy bear. The mother blurts out three words, baby, baby, baby. The doctor transfers the squirming newborn to her breast and the two bond with skin-to-skin contact. Love and happiness flow. The task is completed, the effort done. The child has safely entered the world. But the real hard work has just begun. And this is called um, The Great Equalizer. The democratic nature of parenthood. It doesn't matter who you are, man, woman, or trans, gay or straight, black, white, or any other shade, tall or short, skinny or fat, rich or poor. When your toddler is wailing in a grocery store or shopping mall, when the feet are stomping, the arms swinging, the cheeks reddened, and the tears rolling, all you want to do is pick up the child and make the crying stop. Wealth, social standing, and comely looks mean nothing to kids. They're not impressed by your credentials, and you can't negotiate with these little angels and tyrants who rule the world. Two cliches apply here. Parenting wipes the slate clean and levels the playing field. All mothers and fathers desire the same thing, the health, safety, development of their offspring. The goals are simple amid the frenzy of a life marked by stress and lack of sleep. They are eat the chicken nuggets, drink the apple juice, recite the alphabet, put, put away the toys, finish the milk, wave bye-bye, and go down easy at nap time. Uh, okay. <laughs> and uh, two more. <laughs> two more. One is, uh, <laughs> this one is, is this one is called nap time. Late afternoon, Sunday, gray light seeping in through parted curtains. Mother and baby sleeping on the couch, hair tousled, right cheek against left breast, elbows curved at equal angles. 
I am awake drinking coffee, watching your chests rise and fall and trying not to make any noise. My whole life revealed in the space of three sofa cushions occupied by two human beings who need me. Soon the boy will will stir. Soon he will squirm and cry, scatter his toys, and race around the cluttered living room. Soon we will fix dinner and wash dishes and take out the garbage. But now time is suspended like a Rod Serling freeze frame in a Twilight Zone episode, a halting of activity, a pause in my Sunday, leading to reflection and gratitude for my blessings. Warmth, safety, and responsibility are the words that pop into my head while I observe mother and child stretched out together. I don't think about what I lack or what I hope to attain and achieve. In this moment, I have everything I need. And uh, the last last poem is called Exam Room Revelation. My son, Colin, who's five years old, was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder when he was uh, about two years old. Um, Yes. So... So this is uh, it's called exam room revelation. Autism spectrum disorder. The moment those words escape the doctor's lips, our son's future appears bleaker. The phrases special needs, delayed communication, and lack of social interaction follow. Sorrow for my son Colin gushes inside me. I feel sadness for the challenges he will endure and for his inability to have a normal life. In this case, love proves impotent. You can't intercede with your heart, and, com- and compassion won't fix the little boy sleeping is in, in his bed as I type out this bad poem while lamenting the diagnosis. But love for him does not decrease. Instead, it grows stronger. I am grateful for the blessing of the boy he is and the man I hope he will become, regardless of autism. Mm, that was beautiful. Oh, Thanks. Beautiful piece of work. Thank you. What do you hope that readers get, in quotes, from encountering your work? Um, I hope people will get a sense of universality, like how we're all connected and how, um, you know, we all face the same things and, you know, uh, struggles with life and struggles with the work and, you know, paying bills and, and family life. And, and this, you know, a big part of me, cause you know, I'm in almost my mid fifties and sort of this sense of mortality and knowing that death is coming around the corner and just, especially during the pan- pandemic, just realizing the fragility of life and how it could end any day. And really you're not, you're not, you're not given tomorrow. You only have today. And so sort of like paying attention more to life and appreciating life more, I guess that's what I hope people would see. Well, on that note, let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. Okay. Thank you. 
I am here with Francis De Clemente. Francis, what yeah. did you learn about yourself from writing your book, Outward Arrangements? Um, I think, uh, well, I, I think I learned on the craft, like, um, to take the time to really do multiple drafts of, of the, you know, okay. the book, you know, I just, I, you know, I wrote them and, and I had a manuscript kicking around for, you know, a couple of years, but I really printed it out uh, numerous times and went through word by word, line by line, you know, story structure, as well as just like a line at it. So that, that I learned about taking the time to do the craft and then just in, in overall sense, um, just paying attention in the world around you, like, you know, especially, like I said, I walk to work, but I don't listen to music or podcasts because I always want to be able to hear what's happening and see what's happening and just, you know, because that could always be fodder for poems. Mm-hmm. Did anything surprise you? Um, no, not really, uh, that I can think of. I don't think Okay. Okay. All right. Well, please share some more of your work. Okay, so this section, there's short poems, and these are the ones that were inspired by um, Instagram pictures. So if people wanted to see them, they could just go to my Instagram account. It's Francis DiClemente, just like my name. Um, And so you'll see the pictures uh, with the the text. Uh, So this first one is called Waiting with Vincent, uh, and it was where I was in a hospital waiting room waiting to get an MRI. Um, A scheduled MRI... A scheduled MRI of the brain shifts my thoughts toward all of the what-if, worst-case scenarios. While waiting for my name to be called, I see a print of irises, 1889, hanging on a wall. From far across the room, without my glasses, the slanted vertical green leaves look like snakes writhing in the dirt. But the longer I stare at the image, the calmer I feel. Placid is the word that comes to mind. And I'm thankful Vincent spends a few moments with me prior to my appointment with the tube machine. Because when sitting in a hospital waiting room, artwork by Vincent never fails to lift the spirits. A Van Gogh painting beats People magazine or an iPhone screen anytime. That's the first one. Uh, let's see here. This one is, there's a park, a church park. Uh, that's near my house, and it's, uh, it reminds me of the movie The Quiet Man. So, while wa- It's called Church Park. While walking to work, I pass a little park located next to Grace Episcopal Church. It reminds me of the scenery from the movie The Quiet Man. And in the early morning stillness, I half expect John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara to come striding toward me along the path. It's yet another example of how I have to live vicariously through cinema, since I am confident my feet will never touch Irish soil. Uh, okay. <laughs> this one is a, a short one about a typewriter called Vintage Apparatus. I see a black metal Underwood typewriter in a Salvation Army store. No apps, software updates, or charging required. The keys feel good underneath my fingertips. Uh, this one is this one's about the baby stroller that I saw parked on the sidewalk. It's called Baby Stroller on the Sidewalk. A stroller parked on the sidewalk. No parent present. No wailing heard. Just a question without an answer. 
Where did the baby go? And let's see. This last one is called Lonely Tricycle. A tricycle left near a dumpster discarded, now in need of little feet to power the machine, spurring movement on the sidewalk and evoking hollers of joy while parents follow close behind. Or at least that's what I see in my mind. Tell us about the process. All right. (laughs) Well, tell us about the process for coming up with the cover of the book. Uh, There was a a designer that I hired. uh, It's from you know the the website Fiverr dot com. They have lots of independent contractors. Yes, I know Fiverr very well. I know it very well. So, yeah, I hired her, and she she did one iteration, and I didn't really like it. I was looking for something a little abstract, and so I, I kind of like it because it's got a little bit of mix of colors and stuff. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where that hangs. Now, if you had to find or a favorite poet to serve as your mentor, maybe you have a favorite poet already serving as your mentor. If so, who would it be? Uh, for sure, it would be uh, Langston Hughes. Um, Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes and Charles Bukowski, because um, you know I had always liked poetry, but I, you know I, in classes in English, it always seemed like it was like old English guys and you know meter that you had to follow. And and you know I think I was like in a Borders book in in Arizona when I used to live there, and I saw Langston Hughes selected poems. And it just cracked open my mind because it's like I realized, wait a second, you know, these poems can be short and they can be about your own life. And, you know, it doesn't have to be this formal language, you know, and, and everything is open. And it's and I just loved it, you know, um, and the same with Charles Bukowski, kind of like, you know, the hard stuff of life you can, you know, you can throw into poetry and, and it, it just really like opened my mind and, and freed me. And it's like, okay, maybe, you know, my voice could come out, you know, uh, and it, mm-hmm. it didn't have to be anything formal. Wow. So when your voice emerged, what did you discover about yourself? Well, um, you know, I think I discovered, you know, myself working through issues in my life. And I think the first, you know, some of the first poems that I did was were bad confessional poetry. Um, and I still think I kind of have a confessional poetry side, but I'm a lot stricter okay. with myself and, and trying to be, um, you know, not open, but, you know, also like more rigorous in terms of the craft instead of just throwing everything out there. Um but I, you know, I learned, you know, how you can work through things through poetry. But, it, you know, you can have the confessional side to it, but you always have to have the re- the reader involved and to, you know, make sure that, you know, the reader comes first and that there's something in it for, for he or she or them. Um, and it's not just, you know, you throwing stuff at the wall, um, trying to work out your emotions on the page, that it's got to have you know, a narrative thread or it's got to have some emotional connection that's universal that anybody can connect with. So you really think about your readers when you're writing? Yeah, absolutely. I think you have to. And, you know, maybe not in the first, you know, as the idea emerges, but as you're revising, you know, like, 
that's why I think it's good sometimes when you're in the process of working on something, whether it's a poem or just a, a book, a collection, is to put it away for a while. And then when you come back to it, to, to think of it as you're like you're reading it for the first time as if you're the reader and you didn't write it, you know? Mm. Please share some more of your work. Okay. So let's see. This one is, uh, this is called uh, Warped. Who am I? No, really, who am I? Identity can be transitory, and a discrepancy exists between my knowledge of self and the image I project, a dissonance between my aspect and the voice I hear in my head. The picture and sound seem to run out of sync, and I wonder, is this the me I think I am, and do others see the same thing or a different man? Uh, This one is called Beige. The shade, beige, the shade of my life, muted and lackluster. I want to set myself on fire, bursting into flaming color, taking on the pigments of azure skies, verdant green fields, and lavender tipped with morning dew. But I remain trapped in the amber of my bland landscape. Yet maybe understated is not so bad, since beige seems to blend with everything. Uh, and this, this one is called On the Page. Sweep the pink rubber eraser across the pages of my life. Remove the markings of my existence. Smear the particles of ink into incoherent words and let the faint lines end with a period. Uh, This one uh, is called Dripping Away. Uh, And this is the last one in this batch. Crack open my and let the cerebral spinal fluid drip away, escaping like egg white from a shell. Then take a sledgehammer to the cauliflower ball squeezed inside cranium. Now all memories are washed clean. No more thoughts, words, images, fears, dreams, and desires. Nothing to worry about since nothing exists. My life history drained in the sink with the soap bubbles and coffee grounds. Who am I? I almost forgot. Did I forget? Am I capable of forgetting if my mind is gone? Still, my heart goes on thumping, keeping my life rhythm intact. Scarecrow departed, but Tin Man still here. Am I alive if I don't realize it or really care? Not a bad feeling. Nothing to worry about here. And that's the end of that batch. Francis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you write poetry? <laughs> Why do I write poetry? Uh, Why do you write poetry, my friend? I write it because it seems like it's uh, mm-hmm. propelling me to to write it. I feel compelled to write it. It's I, I don't think I cannot write it. And the, the one thing I really love about poetry, and compared to other art forms, is that even if it's like three lines, if you complete the poem, if you finish what you wanted to do, it's a complete art form. You don't need anything else to do it. You don't need to stage it. You don't need to hire actors. You don't need to film it. You don't need to paint it. It's done. It's a completed work Mm. of art. So I like that aspect that even though it can be something short, you can have that satisfaction of completing something, you know. Oh, very nice. Very nicely stated. Wow. Wow. You you are the man, Francis. (laughs) Yeah. How active are you on social media? 
I'm I'm pretty active because I worked in communications field and I, I enjoy it. I have a blog that I don't update as much as I like, but I try to keep it updated a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I like Twitter. I like Twitter. Um, you know, uh, Instagram. I like Instagram a lot because you know I'm out. I kind of consider myself an urban explorer. Like I said, I walk to work every day, and so I encounter interesting things. So Instagram's nice because you can take pictures and you know kind of have like an archive of stuff. So. I guess that's about it. All right, all right, all right. You know, again, you've written this is your sixth. Yep. Collection. Yes. Where does this book fit into your career as a writer? Um, I think it's it's sort of a progression. Um, you know, in the craft, I hope they're they're smaller poems, they're shorter poems. Um, which I kind of like, like, you know, if I'm reading poetry, if, if, if I see that a poem's going to go on for like five or six pages, I, I, sometimes I can't deal with it. Um, so I like shorter poems. Um, but it's a, it's a sense of like the narrative poems, uh, I think were pretty strong. And there's also a lot of philosophical poems, um, so I think, uh, I hope it's a progression in the craft too. All right, very nice. We have time for one more set of poems. Okay, great. Uh, these are some philosophical ones. The first one called The Grand Mosaic. Moments. Tiny bits of life segmented into seconds, minutes, hours, days. What matters most is this time, this place. Dropping your daughter off at school, squeezing your mother's hand, laughing with your golf buddies, feeling the sun warming your face. These brief intervals constitute our lives, and so I try to exclude day before and day after thinking, because life is a singular noun that works best in the present tense. Uh, This one is called What You Get. There is nothing you can do to avoid becoming dust. You can try to elongate your life, but you will expire one day. And whether cremated or buried in the earth, your body will not survive this world. Maybe your soul will travel somewhere else, but really knows for sure. In this existence, you are granted only two things, right here, right now. That's all you get, so make the most of it. Uh, This is the third one. It's called Epiphany. I've discovered the key to happiness. The realization that there isn't one. You can't coax happiness or make plans for it. You can only attain it by accident through the act of living itself. Uh, let's see. Flip them through here a little bit. Okay. Um, this is called Resolution of Existence. These are two short poems that will end. You must live the life you have and not the one you want. And then the last one is called uh, Point of View. Look outward beyond yourself. Flee the space inside your head and seek the magic of the world instead. And that's the end of that batch. All right. Very nice. What piece of advice would you give to your readers? Okay, to to readers, or are these readers who are poets? These are readers who purchase your book. Oh, okay. Um, Advice, I I don't think I'd really have anything except um, have an open open mind about everything. And um, Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. be open open to the beauty and and the the magic of the world and just you know looking around you. I guess pay attention. But it's such a tough world, Francis. Mm-hmm. What magic is there? What magic is there, Francis? It's such a tough oh. world. Oh, you can see it every day, and just you know, um, just the beauty of nature, and you know, the thrumming of activity, and um, you know, the kindness of strangers that you encounter, and, and of course, there's hard stuff and, and scary stuff in, in the world for sure. But you know, there's a lot of beauty and, and happiness too. All right, where can readers find your work? Oh, uh, um, you know, uh, the book is up on Amazon and, and other places, um, you know, and then my blog is francisdeclementi.com, uh, so it's just my name, and they can find, you know, links to all the books there. What's in the works next for you? Oh, let's see, you know, obviously more poems, I have so many different poems, I have a a crazy like mixed genre book that I'm I'm trying to shop. Um, that's kind of like it's a mix of vocabulary and poetry. It's a little weird, uh, but I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know what's gonna happen with that. So, so that. And then wait, wait a minute, before you've got to tell me, Francis, what tell me about this book? Okay, so vocabulary and poetry. Yeah, so it could be constri- it could be considered poetry or vocabulary. But basically, it's like it's, you go through the alphabet and there's word pairings it's, uh, in big block letters, word pairings on, on a page. So, like, my, a few of my favorites are, like, diffident, different. And so you see the words in big blocks. Uh, lonely, lovely. Um, buffoon, buffoon. You know, and that's the way they are. And I, I did these sets of words and these crazy things just came to me. And so there's, like six different uh, word pairings for each letter of the alphabet. So I'll have to send it to you. You can take a look and see how weird it is. Oh, I like that very much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to thank you, as always, for coming on and sharing your work. You're an incredible poet, uh, yeah. so philosophical and 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 lighthearted. Yeah. Uh, even with the hard things, lighthearted. Yeah. I really appreciate that, Francis. You are yeah. a good man, and I wish you nothing but the best. Yeah, same same to you, Michael, and thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. All right. Well, to our listening audience, thank you, too, for joining in, and we'll be back next week. So as I share every week, let poetry ring. You have just listened to the quintessential listening poetry online radio podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And make sure to catch our next episode. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.